0: Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultivar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now onto the show, Valerie. Welcome to Strategic Financial Leadership. You know, I'm excited for today's conversation because I think it's so relevant to what you know the world is experiencing and what so many organizations are, are dealing with. And you know, you're you're obviously a thought leader and an expert in this field. So I'm looking forward to uh, talking more about this with you.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for having this conversation, and especially for your audience because there are so many aspects to the issues of diversity and equity and inclusion, which are three different things for anyone who isn't clear on that. And it's good to see business leaders starting to address this both as a culture perspective, but also as a business perspective. It matters to your business.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and the implications are are massive and the upside is is really big for organizations that get it right. Before we get into that conversation, I always I'm always interested in my guests and like their journey, their life journey. So, you graduated from Trinity University with a bachelor's in economics and environmental science, and then you went on and you got your JD in law, right, at mm-hmm. the University of California, Berkeley. Talk to me about like your upbringing, like when you were in school, what kind of student were you? and how did this like dictate your career path like did you were you the the type of person where you're like hey i'm going to set some goals this is what i'm going to go do and achieve and and life's been very linear or has it been much messier for you
1: it was really linear up through college i was very driven i knew i was going to go to a private college cuz My sister went to Purdue and I would go up there on weekends and I just felt like I would have been lost at a large state school like that. Our family had very, very limited means. So I knew I had to get a scholarship. I knew I had to be a good student for that. So I just worked really heavily towards college. Now, here's the funny thing. And I share this with a lot of young people. There were two classes in high school everybody took, biology and economics. And I remember thinking those sounded so boring. I was never going to take those. And luckily, because Trinity is a liberal arts college and we have a core curriculum that was required when I got there, I wound up taking an economics class and falling in love with it. And then I I fell in love with environmental science, which is in the biology department. So the two classes I refused to take in high school, economics and biology, were my majors in college. So, So is that that a a good choice? Like, oh, fantastic. Economics teaches you a way to think that I, I really wish a lot of schools focus very heavily on math in their economics training, and Trinity didn't. Trinity is about theory, and it really does teach you how to eliminate constraints, how to see the ripple effects of things. And especially when I got to law school, having a background in economics was hugely helpful. And then law school was a big accident. I thought I was going to get a PhD in economics because Trinity doesn't have a math-based economics curriculum. I actually didn't have the math courses that would have put me in good stead in an econ PhD program, but I had excellent grades. I had excellent GRE scores. And so my advisor in undergrad said, We're, this department is not going to write you a letter of recommendation to the schools you're applying to. Because I was looking at like MIT and University of Chicago. He said, because if we do, you'll get in and you will fail out. You don't have the math skills for that, that kind of economics training. That was pretty devastated. Yeah. And, and by the way, in hindsight, he was 100% right. I didn't feel that way at the time, but I can tell you now he was 100% right. And the other thing he said, which was sort of big picture, was Trinity is so small that we might only place one student every five years in a PhD program like Chicago. And if you get there and fail out with the grades you have, they're going to think we're a great inflation school and we can't afford that. Interesting. So at the same time, I was teaching LSAT prep for the Princeton Review. I'm no interest in law school at all. I, I I launched the San Antonio office of the Princeton Review and we needed an LSAT teacher. So I started teaching it. And then they, Princeton Review found out that I'd never taken the LSAT and they, they panicked and they said, no, you have to take it. So they paid me. They not only paid for my LSAT, they paid me to take it, my regular <laughs> hourly rate. And I can share with you that after you teach prep for a year and you don't care about the score, you can do really well on the LSAT. <laughs>
0: Interesting. So So then you go on and start your career mm -hmm. as a corporate securities lawyer. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And and how Um, was that?
1: It was incredible. Everything. I hated law school, by the way. I hated law school. I dropped out after the first year and started applying to econ PhD programs. And I got into the agricultural and resource economics program at Berkeley, which is the number one environmental economics program in the world. And when I got into that program, they said to me, if you'll readmit to the law school because it was all Berkeley, we don't have to count you in our budget and we can admit another student. So I said, sure, no problem. I didn't care. So I wound up finishing law school right around the time I, I had to make the choice whether to leave the econ program with a master's or stay another four years and get a PhD. And I just the opportunities were too great at that opp- at that time because I had fallen in love with the practice of law by then. I, I hated law school, but For anyone listening, law school and law practice have absolutely nothing in common. (laughs) Not one thing.
0: And what do you mean by that?
1: Well, law school is a lot about theory and getting answers and reading through multiple cases. First off... I hate conflict. I am the most anti-conflict person in the world. <laughs> and I discovered there are all kinds of, and, and all of law school is about conflict and learning how to you know, win. And that wasn't me. And then when I became a corporate securities lawyer, I was an IPO lawyer. I didn't even do mergers and acquisitions. There was too much conflict in that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I did corporate finance. We raised money for our clients and we took them public. And that was incredible. It's so much fun. And everybody's working towards the same goal. So you're not fighting with anybody. And so it was wonderful. And when I discovered that I summered at a law firm in Chicago, and I discovered that. I realized this is, this is what I want to be doing with my life. So I chose not to finish my PhD. I have a master's in economics from Berkeley and environmental economics from Berkeley. And then began practicing law in San Francisco at the start of the internet boom, which was fantastic. I I was one of the lead attorneys for E-Trade when they went public. Interesting. And yeah. And then there were so many opportunities in the Valley at the time that I very quickly went from law to venture capital consulting, to investment banking, to being an executive at an internet startup. And it was at the time when you started to see the slowdown. Number one, I was the VP of business development at Pixel World Networks. We were doing streaming of live sporting events over the internet, which was a fantastic. Our, our product was so beautiful, but it was before anybody could watch it at home. So long story short, my my mother got very ill and I wound up going back to Indiana to take care of her. I sold my house. I sold my car. I gave away everything. I went back to Indiana to take care of my mom. And during, I always say, when I left, the Silicon Valley fell apart. So when my mom got better, by the way, she is still with us, which is amazing. She recovered and she was healthy. And it was time for me to get back to my life. There was nothing left in the Silicon Valley to go back to. So when I got back to the state of California, instead of turning right to go to the Bay Area, I turned left and went to Hollywood and started writing movies. And yeah, and it was, it was a joy. I, I luckily had some financial security that I could focus on that for, I had two years. I said, I have two years to do this. And a year and 10 months later, I was in Joel Schumacher's living room, selling him a movie. And then- I wrote, so my first movie was for Joel Schumacher. The first script I got hired to write was for Joel Schumacher. That movie never got made. And then the second script I was hired to write was for Catherine Zeta-Jones. That movie never got made. Then I was hired to create a TV series for Ice Cube. That show never got made. And then <laughs> then the union went on strike. <laughs>
0: gotcha. Hey, you got some experience though so writing.
1: Oh, and, and uh, no, this is really important for everyone to understand. You can have an extremely lucrative career as a screenwriter without, and without your name ever showing up on screen
0: that's interesting. So like as you think about your life or you look at your life in retrospect, do you think too many young people are overthinking their future and trying to plan the unplanned? Like Oh, it, good you know, lord, there, I'm, I I love you asking
1: this. And Steve, I don't know if you had the opportunity. I was the commencement speaker at Trinity a few years ago and in that commencement, you'll hear me talk exactly about this, which is My career when I was a securities lawyer and an investment banker was to take internet startups public. Five years earlier, when I graduated from college, internet startups didn't exist. So there was no possible way to plan for that career. So what I tell everybody is study what excites you because that means you'll do well at it. There is a career out there in the world that takes advantage of what excites you. There's a career out there that by studying what excites you, you will be prepared for.
0: Interesting. And you think things just then fall into place?
1: They do or they don't fall into place, but the thing, you can't plan for what will fall into place. Look at how many industries exist that did not exist 10 years ago. They need workers and employees and skilled people too. So they're looking for the people with the core skills here's a perfect example. How many engineers 20 years ago were studying how to build self driving cars? Sure. But the people who are building self driving cars right now had the engineering skills it took to learn how to do that.
0: That's a good point. And I like how you said, you know, study what excites you and like pursue what excites you. And then, you know, I think the opportunity presents itself. And, oh, um, 100%. You know, because I look back on my life and, you know, I had this consulting business and I was doing it for 10 years. And then, you know, out of nowhere, this opportunity came up to be a CFO and I, you know, took on the position and I moved out of state, but that wasn't written in any of my like goal books or it wasn't like even in my mindset. And, you know, just the opportunity came up. So I I just, I find it interesting because as I'm mentoring people, you know, sometimes I think we can overthink things and try to like plan our lives and plan our futures, which I think you have to have some sense of direction, right? But there's also other things that are in our future that we can't even plan for.
1: One of the things I say all the time is that this is my career trajectory, lawyer, venture capital consultant, investment banker internet startup executive, screenwriter, author, keynote speaker. Of those seven careers, only two of them, lawyer and author, had I even heard of when (laughs) I went to college.
0: That's interesting.
1: So yes, I, I think it's great for people to have a plan in their life. But if you, I always say this, if you have a plan and you're not following it, that's fine. If you don't have a plan, you're great. If you have a plan and you follow it and it turns out to kind of suck, change direction. Sure. Changing direction is not failure. This is this is important if you're 16, it's important if you're 60. Changing direction is not failure. The failure is in sticking with something that's not working for you out of pride or embarrassment or inertia.
0: Sure. Well, and that's interesting. I mean, because you have a, probably a a really interesting perspective on this because you were, you know, in corporate America, you did, you know, screenwriting in Hollywood. So you had all these different experiences. And, you know, there's a bunch of different ideologies about this where it's like, okay, stick to something and then eventually you'll succeed. But then there's also this ideology where it's like, Hey, look, if it's not working, you may need to pivot because you may be stuck doing something that's just not going to pan out. So how do you know, you know, if you're on the right path and how do you know if you need to pivot and make a transformation in your life?
1: Um, one my second book is called success as a second language and the core exercise in it is learning how to define success for yourself. And that's a big challenge. It's a big challenge in even knowing what you're, if, when what you're doing counts as success. It's a big challenge in telling other people this is what I plan to do, especially for we. a lot of us come from cultures where there's an expectation of a certain kind of behavior a certain way to pay your bills. And if you're not living up to that expectation, it doesn't matter what you do. You have to face up to your family. And, and I tell everybody, and if, if you have to face up to your family to get to pursue what you really want to do with your life, it's worth it. Yeah, it's worth it. I think that's the thing that we get away from is people understanding what the definition of success is for themselves. I have a young cousin who is living four months right now in a monastery to get in touch with himself, his spiritual being, essentially. He has nowhere near the financial security of his brothers and sisters who have all taken more traditional routes. And you know what? He's the happiest person I know. And he's also the person that everyone his, his siblings, everyone can just reach out to when things are going bad and sure. say, hey, I need to talk to you about something because he's the perfect sounding board for all of us.
0: You know, and I, and I think that's interesting. And, and especially what you said, like everybody's definition of success is gonna be different. Mm-hmm. And I think the trap we may fall into is when we try to live our lives based on what we think the world defines success as.
1: Right. And by the way, the same is true for writing. I and speaking, I'm a keynote speaker. I mentor a lot of people, both as writers and as keynote speakers. And I say, if you're not writing about or talking about what's exciting to you, it might as well be computer generated.
0: Sure.
1: Do not try to look for what the world wants to buy and figure out a way to sell it. Look for what you want to sell and figure out where the people wanting to buy it are.
0: That makes sense. No, and I like that approach. And and let's talk about you know speaking because you know you have this incredible TED talk called "How to Outsmart Your Own Unconscious Bias." So, how did you even come across this topic and doing a TED talk in the first place?
1: So, I was working as a screenwriter, and I was—I'd also—I'd written the first book at that point, "Happiness as a Second Language," and I was working on "Success as a Second Language." I I own the trademark on the phrase as a second language for self-help. So I now publish other authors books under that trademark. We've published parenting and creativity and grief and mindfulness, but it was when I was working on happiness as a second language, I got very into the brain science behind a lot of our behavior. And that was the first time I discovered the brain science studies about the differences between the male brain and the female brain. And so much of what I was learning was explaining so many of my experiences as a securities lawyer, as an investment banker, as the only woman in the room. And I was asked by the Los Angeles Film School to give a talk on how women can succeed in Hollywood, which is an uphill battle, by the way. There there are vast differences between the opportunities available to women and the opportunities available to men, especially in things like screenwriting and directing. And at that point, I said, I'm so interested in this brain science. Can I do the talk based on female brains? And they didn't care. They said, sure. So- I, I gave a talk called How Women Can Succeed in Hollywood Despite Having Female Brains. And that was very popular and very well received. And I was asked to do that talk in other places. And this was all a volunteer at that point. And I then began getting paid to give that talk, the How Women Can Succeed Despite Having Female Brains. Mm-hmm. That b- talk turned into a book called How Women Can Succeed Despite Having Female Brains. And so that became sort of a side entity in addition to my screenwriting and it became more of its own thing. Then I started looking at building tech products around the happiness work I was doing. And I started a tech company in 2016 to build our first product was super happy couples. And it was a bot, not an app. There's a, there's some core differences, but we were building a bot that helped couples be better in touch with each other. And it was a wonderful product I will share it was the company did not, was not able to sustain itself over time. But during the course of running that company, I gave the How Women Can Succeed talk at this tech meetup in Pasadena. And the producers of the TEDx Pasadena were in the audience and they said, Would you give a TED talk based on your experience as a CEO of a tech company who is also a woman who is experiencing all of these very, clear to me biases, but unconscious. So the funny thing is a typical TED talk, people will be invited or they'll apply eight to six to eight months in advance. They work on the talk, they get it approved. They do these rehearsals. They have a mentor. They go on stage at showcases. They put themselves on video. They train and train and train, usually six, at least six months to give that TED talk. I was on stage at the Pasadena meetup seven weeks before the TED talk.
0: Oh, well, wow.
1: <laughs> and so that TED talk got put together in five weeks, and it was a whole new talk for me. It was something I had never spoken about in that in that way before. Some of the stories and this crossover, but that TED talk then got a lot of attention, and people started reaching out to me and asking me to talk about unconscious bias. Well. I had the brain science expertise about male brains and female brains. I had done some of the work on the natural bias reactions in our brain, but I did not have the expertise or the authenticity to talk about all other forms of diversity and inclusion, specifically race based. Mm-hmm. And I have a coach, a CEO coach that I was working with with my tech company. And I made the comment to him. I said, I keep getting asked to do these talks on bias and I'm turning them down because I'm not the right person for it. And he said, what would it take for you to become the right person for it? And that really helped me a lot. And so I did a deep, deep dive. I started taking classes. I did a ton of online learning. I read several, several books. And I realized I actually do have a unique perspective on this that is in concert with my expertise, which is the brain science behind this bias and what causes it and why our behavior is both so hard to change and so easy to change. And so then I began speaking on that topic and that's been really rewarding. And without it being something I'm not qualified on anymore, I, I, I won't do something if I'm not qualified to do it, but that just means putting in the effort to get the, to get qualified.
0: Sure. How do you see unconscious bias manifesting itself in organizations today? Hey, real quick. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level, or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called the surprising path to excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our boosting your financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. And a multitude of ways.
1: Uh, At the outset, I I explained that diversity, equity, and inclusion are three different things. And I want to go a little further on, on that. Diversity talks about who you bring through the door. Diversity is who you hire, who you populate your company with, that the responsibility for that is in your hiring practices and in your recruiting. And if you're not bringing the right people in to even interview, then you have to go farther back up the pipeline to what campuses you're recruiting on, what platforms you post your jobs on, so that you're getting diversity, you're getting different people coming in to apply. Equity is about everybody having an equal opportunity to exceed, to get ahead, to be viewed as valuable, to be promoted within the company. And one of the things when you ask, where does, how does unconscious bias manifest? Here is a perfect example the behavior, identical behaviors from two different groups of people are seen as positives for some groups and negatives for others. So a man who very forcefully tells the people who work for him what needs to get done Mm -hmm. is viewed as a strong leader. A woman who says those same words in that same tone of voice is seen as bossy or strident or other words that are worse. A person who looks like every other engineer Is going to propose a solution, and people think that's probably good. We should try it, or let's discuss that. A person who doesn't look like anyone else who has ever worked as an engineer proposes that same solution, and people think, could that really possibly work? Or that is so out there? Or what data is that based on? We don't realize when we're questioning the expertise of certain people when we wouldn't question the expertise of the exact same things coming from different people. We have entire groups who have to prove their intelligence. They have to prove that they belong there. And not only does that limit their abilities to get their voices heard, but it's exhausting. It is exhausting to always have to prove yourself. And that level of exhaustion is unsustainable. So people will not stay where they're exhausted. And companies are losing really, really good people. And think about the cost to your company of losing an engineer. Think about the cost of losing a lawyer. Think about the cost of losing a financial professional. Think about the cost of losing a top sales performer. And you have no idea where they're leaving. They might not even know why they're leaving. One of the stories I tell in the TED Talk is about my assistant asking me if I wanted to learn how to use the billing system Mm -hmm. at our law firm. Well, no male attorney was asked if he wanted to learn how to enter his own timesheets into the billing system. And all of the female attorneys had been.
0: Well, it's interesting because, you know, to even take this further, so I wrote my second book's called Outsizing and in there, there's a a section about strategy and how biases show up in just the strategy room of organizations. So whether that's anchoring or confirmation bias or all the other biases that exist, you know, there's sure there's like the, the turnover cost, right. And the cost of losing, you know, really good talent. But also, I mean, you know, an organization can have these unconscious bias within it And they can go in a strategic direction that can be detrimental to the organization, right? I mean, if you have a group of people and they think the same or Mm -hmm. they talk the same, they act the same, I mean, you could drive a company off a cliff, don't you think?
1: Completely. The the value of diversity is not having people with different body parts or different skin color or different religious beliefs or different national origin in the meeting. It's having people who think differently. Sure. Sure. The value of diversity is having people who think differently in the meeting and you have to have a culture where those people's voices can be heard. You have to have a culture where if that person is being talked over or interrupted, someone else in the room says, hold on, I want to hear what Carol was saying. Or Jamal just brought up a really good point. We need to discuss this further. The, the Amplification of the voices of the people who aren't being heard is what's going to stop your company, like you said, from going over a cliff. Mm -hmm. And it also goes to that exhaustion of having to constantly prove yourself. There's also an exhaustion of constantly having to try to fit in. Sure. And that goes to inclusion, which is your company culture. One of the worst things we do, you're talking about all the various different biases. One of the worst things we have is what's called affinity bias. Mm -hmm. where we hire people and we want to work with people on our teams who are like us. That's We're just comfortable that way. It's just easier that way. But your affinity bias means you're also probably gravitating towards the people who think like you. And therefore, you are not getting anyone challenging your viewpoints. One of the I had the worst boss I ever had. I can give you all kinds of reasons. She was a terrible, terrible boss. But at one point, she said to me, "I value loyalty over competence." And I said to her, "Okay, how do you define loyalty?" And she literally said, "Not disagreeing with me." Interesting. Yeah,
0: interesting perspective.
1: And by the way, that company went under.
0: (laughs) Right, and it's it's interesting how companies disguise this as you know cultural fit where they say, oh, we right. hire for cultural fit, which is essentially affinity bias in disguise.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. If, if, if somebody has to change their behavior to fit into your culture, their behavior isn't the problem. Your culture is the problem.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you should,
1: yeah, you should be looking at how can we expand our culture to let people come in and have their voices be heard? I, I say this all the time. If your team has five white guys from Harvard, and you hire a Black woman from Howard, but the only way she gets rewarded, the only way she can advance in the company is to figure out how to behave like a white guy from Harvard. You've lost all the value of, of of that diverse hire, of that person with a different perspective. By losing that value, you're going to miss out on markets, on opportunities. You're going to do or say something really wrong. And oof, we are in a social media world where companies can get roasted for doing or saying something wrong. We all remember the, the Pepsi commercial with Kendall Jenner, where in the middle of a race protest, a race-based protest, she walks out and opens a Pepsi and gives it to each side. Right. Now, who was in the room when that decision was made? <laughs> But more importantly, who was not in the room when that decision was made?
0: Yeah. Good point. So, I mean, with unconscious bias, like, look, you know, our brains are wired a certain way. We have millions of pieces of information coming at us every second. So we make these mental shortcuts. These mental shortcuts are often, you know, that's where unconscious bias comes from is these mental shortcuts. So is, is it something that we can master and like overcome Like, okay. You say one day, Hey, Valerie, look, you know, I went through training. Now I'm an expert. I don't have unconscious bias, or is this like a (laughs) lifetime pursuit where you're just like, you constantly have biases and you're just constantly trying to be aware of it and be mindful of your actions.
1: I'm going to give a very specific example of this because I, it's the adjustment I had to make in my own life. I, as a filmmaker have made 48 commercials and public service announcements on behalf of marriage equality. From starting in 2008 when it was on the ballot in California. I made a commercial that ran in all four states in 2012 where it was on the ballot, where we won in all four states. I am very proud of my marriage equality work. I very much support it. I'm a straight woman. I'm married to a man. I simply believe this was one of the extremely important discrimination issues that we had to address as a country and we have, and it's good. So that tells you my stance on same-sex marriage. In the meantime, for years, when I would meet somebody and he would talk about being married and I would say, oh, blah, 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 your wife. And he would say, oh, no, my husband. I would still have that little, Ooh, that little shot of cortisol, that little, you know, blink in the back of my head or, or you know, the little tense in the shoulders where I suddenly realized Ooh, I said something wrong or I've made a mistake or, and then I would start to blather immediately about I've done all this work on marriage equality, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know, because there's now so much went into that shock cortisol hits your system. As soon as you are surprised, you, you can't control it. I cannot stop cortisol from hitting my system when something unexpected happens. So that's number one, number two, shame. I don't want this person to think that I have anything against their marriage. So then I have to, you know, overcome all of that that happened often enough that I started thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. How can I stop this from happening? And I realized I can make a conscious effort to not assume any marriage is between people of opposite sex. Mm -hmm. And so now when somebody tells me they're married, I make zero assumption about the person they're married to. And sometimes I'll even in the course of conversation, if I get to a point where I have to use a pronoun, I will say, oh, is it your, is your spouse, husband or wife? And I say that in a way that I hope doesn't seem offensive or upsetting to anybody. I've had occasionally the person who's like slightly offended that I might think they might be married to this person of the same sex, but that's their issue to overcome the shame of, not mine. And I have actually been able to change that. I had a doctor's appointment yesterday with a a new doctor because it was a short-term appointment. And I honestly didn't know who my doctor was. So as I was sitting there waiting for the doctor to come into the room, I made a conscious effort to think, who could this possibly be? And I visualized several different scenarios to set up a variety of expectations. And then it was an older white woman who came in. So I was like, okay. So I was prepared for that. I didn't have any cortisol. I didn't have any unexpected moment. We Hmm. can do this. We have the ability to say, I'm not going to be surprised by this, but here's the other thing. If you are surprised by something, if, if you're expecting your heart surgeon to be, I don't know, a young Asian man and an older black man walks in the room. Okay. Acknowledge that you had a little moment where you're like, Oh, wasn't expecting that. Acknowledge sure. that a little bit of cortisol hit your bloodstream. Don't try to deny it. And then just take a deep breath, deep breath dissipates cortisol.
0: Interesting.
1: Take a deep breath dissipate the cortisol in your bloodstream, then get that rush of endorphins as you happily realize, wow, I have a black heart surgeon. Think how much harder he had to work and how much better he had to be to get in this position. I'm so lucky.
0: And that's that's such a great mindset to adopt. And I think it's it's like these small and simple things that we could do that can have a big impact on our lives. And like mm-hmm. you said, you know, it's a process, right? You're implementing different things. You're changing your behavior slowly. We don't have to be perfect at it, nor will we ever maybe. But I think it's just doing those small and simple things that can have a big impact on our lives and on the lives of others.
1: Yeah. and And, and also, I don't want to distance. That's the individual level. That's the individual changes we can make. But within our companies, we need to make much bigger systemic changes. We need to change how we hire. We need to change our evaluation process to make sure that everybody is evaluated equally, that everybody has the same freedom to fail. If you see one group and you expect them to fail, because no one who, who looks like them has ever succeeded in that job, and you have another group that you expect them to succeed, when those two different groups have the same exact hiccups, the same exact mistakes, one group is seen as fulfilling their expectation of failure, and they're out. And the mm-hmm. other group is seen as well needing the extra, you know, assistance or guidance to succeed. And they're given more resources.
0: Sure.
1: And if you don't examine your hiring criteria, if you don't examine your performance reviews, if you don't exa- train people how to conduct interviews, train people how to conduct performance reviews, if you're not doing this, you are not changing the outcomes. And I will share with you, on this issue, your intentions don't matter at all. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares what your intentions are. If you aren't actively changing the outcomes, you are not going to have the success you need. And I'm not saying this hyperbolically, you are not going to have the success you need to survive in the next two or three decades. And the reason I say it that way in the United States, Gen Z is the 15 to 25-year-olds. People think millennials are like the kids. Millennials are 25 to 40. Right. So Gen Z, which is the next entering workforce, 15 to 25, is only 46% non-Hispanic white, which means only 22% of the entering workforce are white males. And if your company is only set up to recognize the accomplishments and offer advancement opportunities to white males, or your corporate culture only values the behavior of white males, you don't have a workforce in two decades.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And Mark Twain said, when you need a friend, it's too late to make one. Well, let me tell you, when you need a diversity program, it's too late to start one.
0: I, I absolutely agree with that. And I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the trends that you know are, are coming our way and what the future looks like, I mean, it, it's not what we're used to historically. And I think organizations, they can't just pay lip service to this and they have to make structural changes within the organization to survive. Let me switch gears though here real quick, Valerie, because we talked about the business side. Let's talk about the investment side, because I want to hear your perspective because you worked in this field, but why do you think more investors should be discussing diversity and inclusion?
1: It goes also back to that same stat that the next generation is not made up. You're not going to have enough investment opportunities if you're only investing in white males. That's part of it. But another part of it is that the companies that are being started by diverse founders are reaching markets that have been previously so ignored and so overlooked. I always say that if if you're in the banana business and your entire sales force is made up of chimpanzees and you have cornered the banana business And suddenly you look around and you realize, oh, there's this whole fish business that we haven't even considered. So you hire a bunch of penguins or you invest in a bunch of penguins to corner the fish market, but you keep having all your meetings on the top branch of the tree Mm -hmm. and all of your bonding exercises are, you know, swinging on vines. Right. The penguins, they're going to be exhausted. They'll do it, but they'll be exhausted. And they'll over time not be able to succeed and they will leave and they will go somewhere else. And at this point, they'll, they'll not only take the entire fish market with them, they'll probably take your best chimpanzees because mm-hmm. the good chimpanzees are going to work, want to work at the company with the bigger market, with the bigger opportunities. The same is true for investing. You have to look at what market opportunities are we missing? By only investing in the same people who are doing the same things. And then this is where that confirmation bias really, really has to be overcome in a really strong way.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, I and mean, I think it's both for the business, from the business perspective, I think it's from the investment perspective. I mean, just all around, I, mean, I think this is such a critical, you know, topic. And, and I don't think this is something that is just some fad that it's, you know, it's cool to talk about. It's it's trendy. I think this is the way things are and the way they, they should be. And I think organizations that can't get in line with this are really going to struggle to survive like you're talking about.
1: I'll give you an example of a company. When I was running my tech company, I was at a pitch event and I saw this woman who just, it was extraordinary. I'm pretty sure the name of her company is Rose Gold. Uh, I wasn't planning on talking about this, so I didn't, I don't have it right in front of me, but I'm pretty sure the company is Rose Gold. And this woman who started this company is a black woman. And she looked at not only how much she spent on hair care products, but she had figured out, oh, I can buy direct from... I, I, hair extensions, I can buy them directly from India and save a lot of money. So she started doing that for herself. And then she started doing it to distribute to her friends and family. And she started making a good amount of money. And then she realized there's probably other women who would want to do this. So she started, this is one of the most brilliant companies I've ever even heard about. She started a company to be the back-end platform for black women who want to have their own beauty products that she handles the finance she handles the you know admin she handles the ordering and they can do nothing but do marketing and sales and create their own brands around the items that they know they can get less expensively directly and sell within their own communities mm-hmm. so not only has she become an extraordinarily successful entrepreneur she has made thousands of other women into entrepreneurs. In a market, I don't think 99% of typical venture capitalists had any idea existed.
0: Sure. Yeah. What a missed opportunity.
1: Yeah. Look at the people who don't look like the people you're talking to. (laughs)
0: Exactly. I mean, I, I, I think there's so many lessons there and, you know, I really appreciate you spreading that message out there about unconscious bias and everything else and diversity and inclusion. And if you haven't seen the TED talk, definitely check it out because I really enjoyed it and it, it really changed my thinking. So I think that's great. So th- th- let me pivot here before we conclude, because you're a huge fan of happiness. I mean, you, you mentioned your book titled Happiness is a Second Language. I think you even have like a, a certification in the science of happiness. Yes. So why happiness? Why not joy, excitement, passion, et cetera? Do you think happiness is this all-encompassing thing? And is it idealistic or is it something we can intentionally pursue?
1: Pursue is an interesting verb there. So I wouldn't put it that way. why not joy, excitement? Those are all emotions. And even I say happy is an emotion. Being happy is an emotion and you're not going to feel happy all the time, but happiness can be your baseline. Like I always say, I'm a happy person. So even when life knocks me down, I will struggle with the sadness. I will struggle with the disappointment, whatever. But I know that when that time passes, I go back to my baseline of being a happy person. So when you say you pursue it, you're not pursuing being happy. What you're doing is working on what can I change about my beliefs? How can I look at my life in a way that makes me see that happiness can be my baseline? I can, the reason the idea came about it as a second language is that if you grew up in a house where everyone spoke Greek, you would speak Greek. But if you didn't grow up in a house where everyone spoke Greek, You wouldn't leave your home one day and think, well, time to start speaking Greek and Uh think that you could, I'll read an article about it. Let me read an article about speaking Greek. I'll be fluent then. It doesn't work that way. These are incremental changes that we have to make over time that have to be sustained, but they're worth it. They're worth it. And so I think if people just start to look at how can I have a happiness response to this? How can I tell myself that the, the parts of my personality that bring me down that I don't like are permanent. Stop telling yourself that you can, you can work on these things. It is a continuous journey, but it's not a difficult one. I always say this. It's like digging a ditch, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody can dig a ditch. You just have to actually put the shovel in the dirt and mm-hmm. keep doing that. And eventually you're going to discover, I, I joke about this. You're in a happiness rut. And by the way, from a brain science perspective, our Brains form neural pathways. And the more we reinforce those neural pathways, the smoother and faster and deeper they get. Mm -hmm. So you literally are in a rut. If if you have negative beliefs and the more you reinforce those negative beliefs, the more you make deep in that neural pathway, those little brain shortcuts that take you straight to that negative belief. But we have the ability to rebuild our own neural pathways. We have that ability. It just takes that same level of reinforcement and repetition and practice and dedication and surround being around native speakers. Surround yourself with other people who are happy. Find ways to distance yourself from the negative influences that, that defeat your happiness. On a more global scale, since we're talking to corporate leaders about corporate leadership, unhappiness in the workplace costs... Just the U.S. economy, isolating for all other factors, and Gallup studies this. You can find the State of the American Workforce report. Isolating for all other factors, the unhappiness of the U.S. workforce costs our economy six hundred billion dollars a year. If if the happiness of your workforce was a line item in your P and L, you would pay a lot more attention to it. It's not just absenteeism and turnover. It's so many other factors are more expensive in your company when your workforce is unhappy. Uh, Theft, workplace injury, workplace bullying, liability, customer service, lack of innovation. And it's much easier to get the happiness of your workforce right than people think. It's much easier. That's the other area where I work with companies. I work with companies on their diversity and inclusion, but I also work with companies on training your managers to make the happiness of your workforce, a top priority. And when you do that, almost all other metrics take care of themselves.
0: Sure. No. And and I absolutely agree. And I want to be selfish here with my last question um, (laughs) because, you know, I have high expectations and, you know, I think, those expectations can get in the way of my happiness sometimes. And so when I talk to other people, they say, well, Steve, you just got to get rid of your expectations in different scenarios, whether it's expectations of other people, and then they don't live up to those expectations. So then, you know, it gets me down or I have expectations about, you know, Hey, I'm going to go on this vacation. So in my mind, I, I can see all these things unfolding and then I get there and my expectations aren't met. So what's your advice on that? Is, is it a matter of just saying, Hey, lower your expectations, go with the flow, don't expect a lot. But then it's kind of like, okay, heard, you just settle yeah. for that. Then, I mean, how, so how yeah. do you reconcile that?
1: Well, I, I've heard a saying, it's, it's an equation that unhappiness equals the distance between expectation and reality. Sure. So <laughs> then if you continue to have high expectations, rather than say, I should have lower expectations, figure out how to get the reality to where you need it to be.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and that's one part of it is if if this is a consistent outcome in your life, oh, I expect my vacation to be X, Y, Z, and A, B, and C, and then you get there and it's X and B. Mm Right. Then pre-plan for that and say, all right, last time I went on vacation, I expected these eight things to happen and only two of them happened, so I was so disappointed. Well, then- Set a different set of metrics and say, I expect these eight things to happen. If only two of them happen, I'll be disappointed. If four of them happen, I'll be pretty satisfied. And if six of them happen, it'll be amazing. I like that. So reset that and then put in a little more effort to make sure that eight of them, that, that six of the eight can happen. I, I have a, a family member who is consistently let down because she refuses to see, what reality is going to deliver from other people. And every time she goes into a new endeavor, it's looking at it as this is going to be the best possible outcome, even though anyone else looking at it says, well, the last four times you did this exact same thing, this was the outcome you got. Sure. So it's really important to make sure that there's some level of realism to your expectations. It's really important to figure out what you can do to adjust the outcomes so that you're not disappointed. And then here's the other thing. I, I, I I used to coach, I used to do private coaching for happiness. I don't anymore, but one of the exercises I worked with people a lot on was on overcoming regret. Regret is a huge detriment to our happiness. And I always say your regret is the best creative writing you ever do.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: So if you think, oh, I should have bought that house in Beverly Hills when I had the chance 20 years ago, and now that house is worth X millions of dollars and my crappy little house is only worth half a million, right? Sure. Well, that's because you're writing this fantastic story about living in that house and all the good things that would happen and what it would be worth. But In life, we don't get to see the alternate timeline. We don't get to see what happened on the timeline of the choice we didn't make. And so that's when we start all this incredible creative writing about how amazing that timeline would have been if only we'd taken it. Mm -hmm. So what I say is, well, if you're going to do some creative writing, try this. Write the story of taking that timeline and all the horrible, terrible outcomes that could have happened.
0: That's a good point.
1: And as soon as you write that story instead, you're gonna say, "Whew! Thank God I'm not on that timeline."
0: That's such a great perspective. I I really like that, and that's a great way to look at things because I think we all do that, right? Very, very powerful. So, Valerie, I I could keep going forever on uh, on this, but I'm gonna cut it there. But you know, I I really appreciate you know just your thoughts on this and like the work that you're doing in this area. It's pretty unique, and I like it, and I, I think it adds so much value to organizations. So congratulations on just your life journey and and just where you've gone so far. And I'm excited for what the future holds even more for you.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I really appreciate you bringing me on.
0: I definitely, uh, I've enjoyed this conversation as well. A lot of great takeaways for me personally. And I I think the same is true for all the listeners out there. So everybody, thanks for joining Valerie so much once again, and, uh, take care.
1: And Steve, if anyone needs to reach me, I'm at speakhappiness.com.
0: Okay. Speakhappiness.com. Definitely check it out. Definitely check out our Ted talk too. Absolutely. Fantastic. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect all the best.